The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Welcome back to Sacred Season. I'm Danielle Hitchin. And I'm Erin Holly. Sacred Season is dedicated to coming alongside listeners like you, with encouragement for whatever season you're in, but especially if you're parenting in the little years. Each episode is built around a season of the liturgical calendar. We believe the church calendar is a helpful way of discipling our hearts and our time, and that each season can lead us into deeper relationship with God and a deeper understanding of ourselves. Happy Easter, friends. A little late. (laughs) Uh, What a glorious church season it is. After the wilderness season of Lent and the emotional roller coaster of Holy Week, we get to celebrate the wonder and beauty of an empty tomb, a risen Christ, conquered death, and direct relationship and access to God. Amen. Amen. Easter, or Eastertide, is the second longest season in the church calendar, second only to ordinary time. It lasts from Easter Sunday until the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 whole days. And we have intentionally decided to air this episode during Easter time, not just on Easter Sunday, so that we can continue to celebrate the goodness of the resurrection for these full 50 days and indeed for the full year. So the Feast of Eastertide also includes the Feast of the Ascension, which is the day that we celebrate Christ's ascension into heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father and fully enthroned as king over all of creation. As I was preparing for this episode, I realized that I have no idea where the word Easter comes from. And it turns out that the word Easter has thoroughly pagan roots. (laughs) Around 600 AD, Pope Gregory sent the monks to the British Isles to convert locals to the faith. This was to be done rather sneakily by slowly and surreptitiously co-opting their traditions and holidays to also and then eventually only celebrate Jesus, saints, or other Christian religious holidays. The monks managed to do this pretty successfully, even renaming almost every celebration except for Easter. Easter, both past and present, was celebrated around the same time as the Jewish Passover, also called the Paschal season. The festival of the goddess Yoster, spelled E-O-S-T-R-E, was celebrated around the same time as Passover each year. So naturally, the Roman monks sought to convert this festival into a celebration of the resurrection. They more or less succeeded, except that the Anglo-Saxons clung to the name Yoster instead of eventually adopting Pascha, as is common in Eastern Europe and is still used by the Greek Orthodox Church. I love that history, um, Danielle, and I also love just the the timing uh, of the church calendar and that Easter takes place during spring. Uh, Spring is my definite favorite. Spring is definitely uh, my favorite season. Uh, It's a season of renewal uh, and new life, uh, which dovetails so perfectly uh, with Easter. And I imagine that for many of you, uh, spring might also be your favorite season. Uh, Growing up on a ranch, there's the promise of green grass. Uh, after the hard winter, uh, there's tulip shoots that grace our yards unless the deer eat them first. Um, they promise sunshine and warm days and just point us to the promise of newness uh, in Christ as well. 
Oh man, I totally resonate with that. Every spring as the flowers start to peek out, I just think about Revelation. He is making all things new. And I love that we get to see that physically manifest in our world each spring, the renewal. So, I mean, in case anybody out there has been wondering about the prevalence of eggs and bunnies at Easter time, these symbols have also have their roots in a pagan festival of Yoster, which was a celebration of springtime and fertility. And the bunny was originally a European brown hare, which was celebrated for its ability to conceive and carry another litter while the first has yet to be delivered. That sounds like a nightmare, hey, mamas? Yes, yes. Not, not, not <laughs> and eggs have long been a symbol for springtime and fertility. And the ancient Germans apparently brought these two symbols together as they said that a mythical hare would lay colored eggs for well-behaved children on Easter or Yoster's Day. German immigrants brought this tradition to the U.S. in the 18th century, and eventually it was co-opted and commercialized by the broader American society. But eggs have actually been, um, have long been a symbol of new life. Ancient Christians used to dye eggs red to represent the blood of Christ. The hard shell was the symbol of the tomb. Then on Easter, you would crack the eggs open and a white spotless egg emerges, symbolizing Jesus's resurrection and how our lives are washed clean by his blood. And we included a recipe for how to dye super red Easter eggs in our show notes in case you're interested in doing that. You know, one thing I love about the church calendar is that our biggest holy days, Christmas and Easter, are not only preceded by a season in which to prepare and anticipate them, but are also followed by entire seasons in which to celebrate them. So if you didn't get around to dying Easter eggs before Easter or doing your Easter picture studies or making that special Easter treat or, you know, recording and producing your <laughs> Easter podcast episode <laughs> by Easter Sunday, you have 50 whole days in which to continue to enjoy those traditions and those treats. And this is a great way to model for our children that Easter isn't just one day and to help them really get into the spirit of the season. So speaking of the spirit of the season, when we focus on Easter, maybe even more than at any other time during the church's liturgical calendar, we focus on the gospel. We focused on the fact that Jesus died uh, for our sins. Uh, the, The reality is that Jesus changes everything and that Easter changes everything. We have hope uh, because of the resurrection. And Romans 10, 9 tells us that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One of my uh, little boys um, has prayed over and over again, <laughs> uh, the prayer for salvation, um, which I just just love his heart. He wants to be sure. Um, but that, that prayer is, is really simple. Um, and it just acknowledges that we as humans are sinful, that we have a sinful nature and that we choose to sin, but that that is immaterial in light of Christ's immense sacrifice on the cross, that he took our place uh, on the cross, that he paid the entire price uh, for our sins, uh, and that because of him, uh, we have hope. Um, Sometimes uh, Christians talk about having a verse for the year. Uh, And this year, Psalm 71, 14, I think is the verse that God gave me. And it says, but as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And that hope is because of Easter. That hope is because what Jesus uh, did on the cross uh, in paying the penalty for my sin. So I can tell my sons uh, and later my daughter with full assurance uh, that Easter changes everything. And I love uh, one of the things that A.W. Tozer writes is that one characteristic that marks the average church today is lack of anticipation. Uh, That Christians, when they meet, do not necessarily expect anything 
unusual to happen. Uh, and for me, Easter is the remedy to that. In Easter, we not only get the full salvation story, we not only understand God's immense sacrifice, Jesus's immense sacrifice, but we also understand that the same power that raised Christ from the dead uh, lives in us today. So Easter uh, is, is incredibly important for our faith. Yeah, I really resonate with the idea that Christians don't expect anything unusual to happen either on Sundays or in any other time. You know, I think this can be especially true if you grow up in the church or don't have some kind of overwhelming conversion story. And I think one of the biggest challenges to raising kids in the faith well is to help them catch a sense of the awe and wonder of Christianity, which is essentially the awe and wonder of Christ's death and resurrection of God's big story and big plan. And there are lots of wonderful children's books out there that I think help kids kind of catch the story of the fall through Jesus's um, first coming and death and resurrection, and then all the way up to Jesus's second coming. But it's important for parents to really model what it looks like to live faithfully and to live with awe and wonder in light of the gospel. I think one of the key lessons that we can help model for our children uh, around Easter time uh, is just the idea that we don't have to be perfect. Um, at bedtime, not very long ago, one of my kiddos says, you know, mom, I just wish I were perfect. And I can really resonate with that. <laughs> I can relate to that because I wish I too were perfect. And of course, that's never, ever uh, going to happen. Um, but as a recovering people pleaser, I hope to teach my kiddo uh, that even though uh, we're not perfect, that's completely okay. Uh, none of us are immune from mistakes, but the beauty of Easter really lies in the gospel's promise that there's nothing we can do uh, to make God love us any more or any less. Uh, rather, we are restored to a right relationship with him, with God, because of what Jesus has already accomplished. Perhaps the three most powerful words that were ever spoken here on earth are uttered by Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. Mm -hmm. I just love that idea that because of what Jesus has done, our salvation is complete. Uh, my kiddos uh, don't have to worry uh, about getting things perfect uh, because Jesus has already uh, taken their place. So when we put our faith in Jesus, when our children uh, put our faith in Jesus, uh, he signs and seals us. He utters, it is finished. I love that point. I mean, Easter really does change everything. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And I love that um, our belief in the resurrection makes it so that these things that we're doing, these acts of faithfulness are not in vain. They are really meaningful and genuine. And, you know, I think so much of the Christian life is about participating in cycles of death and resurrection until we participate in the final cycle of physical death and literal physical resurrection. And C.S. Lewis wrote that nothing which has not died can be raised to new life. And the term we generally use to describe these cycles of death and resurrection is sanctification. It's a refining process wherein God weeds out our sin, helps us to die to ourselves for the sake of gaining the kingdom, and then rise to new life in him. And as we think about our sanctification and the idea that Christ is making all things new, it's encouraging to realize afresh each year that God really means all things, our physical lives, our spiritual lives, our emotional, relational, mental lives. I love that reminder that God means all things, that he's renewing all of us, our physical and our spiritual, as Daniel said, our emotional, our relationship lives. And I think there's something really unique uh, about resurrection power. Uh, Nikki Gumbel says that when people think about the love of God, they think about the cross. 
Then they think about the power of God. They think about the resurrection. So as Aslan rose from the stone table and the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, our Jesus also rose from the grave on that third day. He conquered death. And even more, he promises to raise immortal all of us who believe in him to make, as Daniel said, all things new. And I love that he doesn't start over with a blank slate. He doesn't shake an etch-a-sketch and wipe us out and start all over. Um, But God does something even more magnificent. He takes our broken, sinful bodies and he makes them new. And as we've talked about before, this says something really important about our bodies. They are good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, as we think about sanctification and participating in cycles of death and resurrection, I just want to remind everybody that we are not called to sacrifice or die to self for the sake of learning endurance or proving our love or because God desires something in our suffering. You know, Jesus says that for whoever, whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake would find it. So we are called to death because in losing our life, we gain everything. When a person is baptized, it's a metaphorical symbol of this process. It's our death and burial with Christ in the water and then our rising to new and eternal life in Him. And as we think about resurrection and sanctification, one topic that comes to mind for me is especially the sanctification of our time um, and the ways that we observe the church calendar, but also especially in thinking about the sanctification of our time and observing the Sabbath. As observers of the church calendar and Sunday worshipers, we already believe that our time is a gift to be discipled and stewarded for the glory of God. It's interesting to me the ways that Jesus shifts the meaning of the Sabbath, both through his work on earth and through his death and resurrection. Jesus, we know from scripture, was crucified on a Friday and his body rested in the tomb on Saturday. He's a good Jewish boy, even in death, resting. And then on Sunday morning, we learn that he is risen from the dead. As such, Sunday became known as the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, a day for feasting and worship, and many Easter every week through the whole year. Christian worship services were established on Sundays, and Sunday became the new Sabbath tradition for Christian communities. And I think that one of the things that our kids teach us as they teach us so many things is just the theological nature of Sabbath uh, and of rest. It wasn't very long ago. And one of my boys woke up at night um, and just said, Mama, I can't sleep. Can you help me? And as it just in that simple statement, I think we see one of the purposes uh, of Sabbath rest. Uh, and that's that rest admits that we are finite that we have limits. Uh, God, of course, is limitless. Uh, We are not. Um, My four-year-old at the time knew that he needed sleep. Rest is one way in which we abandon the world's work and worries to the one who never slumbers. And I love that in the Jewish tradition, there's actually an inversion of our day and night. In the Jewish tradition, days do not begin with morning breaking new. Uh, Instead, they begin with the setting sun. And for me, at least, this time inversion says something deeply theological. For the ancients, their days did not begin with the morning rush out the door, with packed lunches, with homework slips, uh, with forgotten raincoats, uh, with to-do lists, uh, but rather they began in the quiet acknowledgement of their limitations, of their dependence on rest. And this orientation of night first and day second really puts an emphasis on God as creator uh, and us as humans uh, as a limited participant. Um, As Eugene Peterson says, the Hebrew evening and morning sequence conditions us to the rhythms of grace. We go to sleep while God begins his work. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. And I love how um, Christians have taken Sunday as the first day of the week to become their day of Sabbath rest. We begin our weeks with a rest in God. You know, Monday is not the first day of the week. Saturday is not the first day of the week. But the Sabbath, our Sunday, is the day that we rest and the day that we begin our Um, we begin our week, we begin our work. 
The Sabbath is rooted in God's work in creation. God created the world in six days, and on the final day, he rested. And we all know that God wasn't tired. Rather, he was modeling for us something that was important about who he created us to be and how we ought to live. And making time for rest is a way that we become more like God. This rest was, of course, codified when Moses was given the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5.12 tells us, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For the Jewish community, this meant that Saturday was observed weekly as a day, a full day of rest. They didn't cook, they didn't clean, they did nothing but sit around, enjoy one another, take time to rest from their chores. Now, Jesus, of course, he illuminates and reinterprets the Sabbath laws as he does with all the Jewish law. He is often at odds with the religious leaders for what they considered his flagrant disregard for Sabbath tradition. For instance, he heals on the Sabbath and he picks and eats grain with his disciples on the Sabbath. And he ultimately explains that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, showing us that ultimately the Sabbath, like all other good gifts of God, should not be an idol for us, but a gift to us. I love that picture of the Sabbath as a gift uh, and how Jesus uh, emphasized to his disciples that, that rest uh, can be a gift uh, from God. Um, in Isaiah uh, 58, 13 through 14, in the message really emphasizes that. It says, if you watch your step on the Sabbath, if you don't use his holy day for a day of personal advantage, but if you treat it as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. So I love this idea in Isaiah that one of the reasons that God gave us the Sabbath is frankly so that we can enjoy Him, so that we're not scurrying about worrying about uh, the things we typically uh, do uh, on our work days, but rather we are free to enjoy Him. That's a great point because I think in the modern age, our temptation is definitely to swing in the opposite direction of the religious zealots of Jesus's day and to ignore the command of Sabbath altogether. You know, observing the Sabbath is a discipline. It was a spiritual discipline for the ancient Israelites, and it's a spiritual discipline for us. You have to plan for and make space for Sabbath in your life. As a bit of a workaholic, my base instinct is to not Sabbath, not to rest. I don't trust that I'll be able to do all the things I need to do if I take time to rest. You know, I recently read, Danielle, that by the time we're 60, which makes sense if you calculate, but by the time we're 60, we will have spent 20 years of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never sleeping again. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) I was listening to a sermon pretty recently in which a pastor explained that Sabbath is similar to tithing. In the same way that the tithe is a financial expression of trust that 90% of our income with God is better than 100% of our income without, taking a Sabbath is an expression of trust that six days of work with God is better than seven days of work without Him. And you know, I have generally found this to be true. In spite of taking a day of rest, somehow the things that I need to get done still, weirdly, get done. But here's a question. What does Sabbathing practically look like for us? I've heard it said that the Sabbath is about the things that we get to do, not the things that we have to do. This has been a really helpful way for me to think practically about what Sabbath rest looks like for me, and it's a great mindset shift. It's a reminder that I get to go to church and worship with my children, however challenging that can be on a Sunday, rather than that I have to manage my children during a worship service. 
I love this perspective of, of getting <laughs> to enjoy worship <laughs> with your children. Um, during the pandemic, of course, many of us have had our children with us uh, in service, uh, providing uh, that we feel comfortable uh, going uh, to church service. Um, and those first few weeks were pretty rough um, with mm-hmm. two active boys. But I love, I, I've come to enjoy actually having them uh, in the service as they participate in worship uh, and as they absorb hopefully something uh, from those sermons. Um, and you know, this idea of what do we get to do to worship God, I think is such an important framing. Um, in his book on Sabbath rest, Pastor Brady Boyd writes that in order to observe Sabbath, you've got to know what makes you come alive. Um, and I know for some of us moms out there, that question itself is sort of exhausting. Like, what is it that makes you come alive? I'm so tired. I have no idea. Um, but, but if that's where you're at and I've been there, then we can start slow. You can take a walk. You can take a nap. Um, just figure out those small things um, that give you joy. Yeah. So if you're confused about maybe how to approach Sabbath or which ways to observe the Sabbath, which will be life-giving and restful to you, I would encourage you to ask two questions of yourself. And these are two questions I ask myself. And this, what things could I do on the Sabbath that I don't enjoy and I could reasonably put off? And what things could I do on the Sabbath that are life-giving to me? And in answer to that first question, my temptation is always to use Sunday as a catch-up day to do laundry, meal planning, a big deep clean project, or deal with the massive emails that need responses. But I need to set those things aside. The Sabbath is not for those things. As I think about the second question, my mind shifts to things that I enjoy, creative home projects, giving myself space and time to cook a nice meal or do meal prep for the week, take a nap, do yoga, read a book for a few hours, or work on a long-term writing project that I don't necessarily have creative brain space to work on during the week. And I always feel like the Sabbath is a day for being a little bit indulgent and a day for taking the pressure off and doing things that are just fun and a little bit more lighthearted and that make me feel happy. You know, I love that both Brady Boyd and Mark Buchanan, uh, both pastors who have written extensively about rest and about taking Sabbath, admit that they mow the grass on Sunday because they enjoy it. <laughs> and so, so you've got these pastors out there mowing grass on Sunday. Uh, but for the reasons uh, that Danielle mentioned, uh, because it's something that's life-giving to them to, to be outside, uh, to be doing something that they may not necessarily have time uh, to enjoy during the week, uh, but that they can uh, rest in God uh, as they are doing. Uh, so in commanding the Sabbath, uh, God meant to give us uh, and the Israelites the freedom to enjoy him. So maybe this week you can take some time to ask yourself the two questions uh, that Danielle did. You know, are those some things that I don't enjoy um, that I can recently put off and maybe put those off until Monday? And then what are some things that are life-giving to me that, that I can enjoy God while doing? Um, and maybe those are some things uh, that you could uh, reserve uh, for the Sabbath. As we wrap up this episode, I wanted to take us back just for a moment uh, to the first part of Holy Week, uh, to Palm Sunday. And after that joyful procession in which Jesus approaches Jerusalem, comes in Jerusalem, uh, there comes a solemn reading of the Passion narrative. Uh, And in some churches, the parishioners take the part of the crowd, which means that we as a church, along with the crowd in Jerusalem, shout, crucify him, crucify him. This is such a sobering reminder to me of the part that I played in Jesus's death and crucifixion. Rembrandt understood this so well when he put himself into the picture of the raising of the cross. And yet it is incomprehensible that after the crowd rejects him, after I reject him in choosing sin, 
Jesus goes to the cross to save us, to save that crowd, to save you and me. Without the cross, there's simply no Easter. But because of the cross, because of Jesus's salvific work, because of the salvation he offers, we can say with Jesus, it is finished when we put our trust in him. Amen. As usual, we will close this episode with a meditation on scripture. Today's passage is Isaiah 25, 8 through 9. As you're able, take a deep breath, close your eyes, open your heart, and ask the Holy Spirit to help you better understand day by day how to live into the love Christ showed us on the cross and the resurrection power he gives to those who believe in him. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation.